Hi, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. It turns out we humans aren't always that good at thinking. We make mistakes in our reasoning every day that fall into predictable patterns. And recent research in psychology is giving us a clearer sense of these common pitfalls. It turns out our instincts when it comes to thinking, they may have helped our caveman ancestors, but many of them now lead us to make biased decisions or incorrect assumptions. Wu Kyung An, a psychology professor at Yale University who directs the Thinking Lab, decided to teach an introductory class called Thinking that lays out the most common mistakes of human reasoning and some strategies to correct them. When this professor last offered this course in 2019, it was the most popular class at the university that semester, with about 450 undergrads sitting in the largest lecture hall on campus. The idea is that helping students understand these issues will not only improve their own lives, but can help them make better decisions as future citizens and leaders on pressing issues like climate change or healthcare. For that reason... Ahn says that this is the kind of course that every college should offer, and possibly every high school as well. It's not just about learning how stupid people are, how many errors we can make in our thinking. It's more about why we make those errors, why we have evolved to think that way. And as a result, we can also think about what we can do to prevent prevent this. The popularity of the course led this professor to assemble the lessons into a book called Thinking 101, How to Reason Better to Live Better. I recently connected with Ahn to hear her key takeaways from the book and class and find out how cognitive biases can impact educational systems, such as college admissions. I started by asking how she came to teach a class called Thinking it's an evolving process. So in um, when I first started teaching, I started uh, I te- taught a course called cognitive psychology or introduction to cognitive science. And you know, there's a big part of that course that covers its kind of human reasoning and thinking processes. And then I developed a seminar uh, for upper level psychology majors uh, on topics of thinking. And so th- that was a very small class. And in 2016, I started thinking that um, there should be like a, a, a course for more introductory course that's not just for psychology major, but for everybody who had not taken any psych courses. And um, the reason why I started thinking that is um, there seems to be like a uh, in the culture, there seems to be a strong need to learn that it is actually, it is very important to be rational because, you know, being rational, that seems like a very abstract concept. And it's like, you know, you have to be like calculating, you have to be correct, mathematically correct. And, um, but why does it matter that we have the correct, we know the truth? Or why does it matter that it has to be the right answers, right? So I started thinking about that issue more and how, how being irrational actually hurts ourselves, not just, you know, being wrong, but it actually hurts ourselves and 
Um, and it can also hurt people around us as well. So that's one of the themes in the um, in the book. Yeah. Yeah, this is a really interesting. So it's it also feels like we are in a moment of extreme polarization and misinformation on the internet, and you know all of these different media uh, sources coming at us and platforms like now TikTok and and all kinds of things before that, all the social media platforms that are out there. So it does feel like there is this, that people are being thrown a lot of information in ways that are trying to manipulate them. Um, is that, is that another reason for the need, the need for this instruction manual on how to think? I do talk about like how uh, the importance of rational thinking for uh, climate change issues and, um, you know, racism, sexism, and all the societal issues. But I, I'm a psychologist, so I also study how it affects our individual well-being as well. So my favorite example is, you know, this is a fallacy that I commit myself all the time, which is a uh, I have, a, I still suffer from imposter syndrome. Uh, and, uh, I mean, of course, there are many, many reasons why I, you know, might have this, but. So, this like, the idea works. that, you know, even though you're at this top name university and you're like, it's, you know, all these established things, that somehow you're not, like, meant to be there? Is this the, you know, imposter syndrome? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and it's a very simple mechanism, right? So it's called confirmation bias. So whenever um, I get a you know book published, for instance, and I get like some pe- people send me, oh, I loved you know your book and blah blah blah, and I say, oh, they're just being nice. <laughs> so it's like a because I have an imposter syndrome, I just interpret them in a in the way that fits with my existing um, belief. Uh, and that cannot be good for me, of course, right? Um, and uh, uh, so, and also, I kind of seek more negative reviews, also. <laughs> and uh, the same thing with the course evaluation. So, at the end of the semester, students file um, report the you know how the course went. Yeah, they went, anonymously and say, yeah, give you their yeah. They, Exactly. And of course, I search for the negative comments, the worst possible ones. And that's called the negative, negativity bias that's in the book. So we end up, even though 96% of the course evaluations were all positive and great, the 4% really is, is something that caused me to ruminate. Uh, and why, why did I do that? Or how can I fix that? And of course, it can be good uh, for improvement. But, you know, I have to maintain my sanity as well. So I, I can't just dwell and ruminate only on the negative parts either. So so there are all these kind of individual... I don't talk too much about my own personal problems in the book, but <laughs> but these are the examples of... Uh, I, mean, I am aware of it, but I'm still struggling. But I could have been worse uh, if I had not known all these biases beforehand. And that's how I see it. <laughs> No, I think it's, and it's very powerful that even though you know the science and teach the science, you still find yourself having to remind yourself how to uh, go against these instincts that we have, these, these kind of like damaging kind of self-defeating instincts. Right. So the, I didn't use the term instinct, but that's actually a great uh, way of thinking about it. It's like these biases are ingrained in our, you know, 
brain for evolutionary reasons. And uh, uh, that's why it's so difficult to get rid of. So that's another theme that I wanted to emphasize in the book, which is that it's not that only the bad people commit these fallacies. Um, you know, so w- when there's a polarization, or like somehow dumb so people, like the people exactly. that aren't, aren't smart enough to to reason. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So especially when we're dealing with the political issues, when you hear the other party's uh, opinion and say, "Wow, they are crazy!" You know, how on earth could they be thinking that? Uh, right? Uh, they're so dumb. That's not the case. They are, everybody is, you know, we are prone to make all these errors. And so to give an example of a confirmation bias, as a quick example, so we, we make bias interpretations every single moment of our life. So I, when I saw your face on the screen, I immediately interpreted you as a human being rather than a robot or a dog or, or serial killer or, you know, <laughs> there are so many possible interpretations I could ba- make. But based on the conversation you and I had and, and knowing that we have an appointment and all this information allowed me to interpret you as Jeff Young rather than, you know, someone else. And, that's what we do at every single moment. And that can go wrong depending on the kind of information that you have. Or, um, so, and the other thing is that in, in terms of a negativity bias, it's like we, uh, back in old days, very, very long time ago, um, you know, the resources were very scarce. Uh, so any loss in our life could be a matter of life or death. So we had to be very sensitive to losing something, something negative. So th- th- we are evolved. Some one theory is that we are evolved to be sensitive, overly sensitive to the negative information. And, but we don't have to be like that anymore in the contemporary society, but we had not caught up with that evolution process yet. So that's why we have that kind of a tendency. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, there are these, you mentioned the personal, you know, uh, impact of these negativity biases and other biases, but there's also systemic ones that I wanted to, and some of them relate to education. There was one example in your book that was really interesting to me about um, admissions committees for a college and how they interpret GPAs, uh, you know, different scores, report cards for different prospective students who were applying um, that had a mix of, of say, most you know some A's but a couple B's or or B minuses or something. Could you could you say a little bit more about how this negativity bias can play into a decision by a big institution on which call which student to accept? Uh, okay, that's a good one. Uh, so here's how the experiment went, and it was my own experiment. So uh, we made up uh, fictitious transcripts of two students. One student, we're going to call it ABC. And this student has a mixture of grade A, B, and C. Um, but the average grade is like a B. There's another student whose grades are a mixture of B plus B and B minus. So let's call that student a BBB student. Okay. And so we constructed these transcripts such that the average GPA, uh, both students' average GPAs are identical. So there shouldn't be any difference in terms right. of the, the total, academic. the total, yeah, the total GPA is the same. 
you know, like right, three, right. three point something, right? Whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, um, but if he, um, so there are two possible hypotheses. Uh, who, who, so, so the subjects were asked to decide who would you admit or who's going to do better in college? Uh, how much money do you think this student will make after college and all these predictions? So they look at this set of grades for each student, the, the breakdown. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And there are two possible predictions here. Uh, one is that um, the college, uh, you know, especially the top colleges in the United States, emphasize uh, passion. So students should demonstrate their passion about something. So given this, BBB student does not really look like a you know, she has a lot of passion for it because it's just all mediocre. And, but student ABC looks like she has some passion on something, right? The ones that got A. So there might be some, you know, uh, reasons why ABC student is a, is a better student for the college. But then alternatively, the second possibility is a negativity bias. Um, the student BBB doesn't have anything really bad, but the student ABC has C grades. And if you overweigh the C grade, then it will cancel out not only the A grade, but it will be even more negative than, um, than BBB student. So it turned, so we did this study with, um, Yale undergraduate students as participants admission officers that uh, who were willing to uh, participate in our study and also just the general public. Uh, and consistently, all three groups preferred BBB, student BBB, than student ABC. That and one C, so, that one C just loomed large, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Um, and we even took it further. Uh, so this time we made the GPA really, really high. So one student has um, A plus, a lot of A pluses and some A's, but then he, uh, he had A minus, couple of A minus, uh, no, B minus, I'm sorry, couple of B minuses. And then the other student didn't have A pluses, but mostly A and A minus. Again, the total GPA of the two students were equated. But, Just the same, uh, the same GPA, yeah. Yes, yes. And this time we recruited admission officers from really, really top elite college universities in the United States. And they much prefer the student without a B plus than a student with a B plus. Yeah. So, <laughs> but then, you know, I don't have a permission for my son. Um, he's, he's a Yale student. Um, he had a B plus <laughs> in college, I mean, high school, uh, probably in college too. I didn't check his transcript in college, but, um, the, the thing is, um, this is a very artificial transcript. And when you're applying for colleges, you don't just submit the transcripts. Uh, and you will get to also see all these statements. You get to see the person as a whole. So a C grade or B minus grade could be understandable in the context of your story. So if you, if you look like a STEM person, someone who is really like a math oriented, computer science oriented, but that person got a B minus in a history. It's fine. We know that, you know, where his passion is. So, 
um, you get to, so it can be explained away. So you don't have to really freak out. Or you don't have to really make sure to even out all these grades. That's not good for you at all. This is not what uh, you know. I'm trying to say <laughs> with these results. It's actually the opposite. But it's at the same time, we, it's not a bad idea to be aware of the negativity bias. You can't just dismiss one course <laughs> if you care about your <laughs> getting into college. Yeah, so. No, it's interesting. I, I get you. So like, in other words, you're not trying to give admissions advice of like never, never do anything but perfection, which is unattainable for most of yeah. most of us mortals. Um, One more thing. Uh, I did serve on the admissions committee several times as a professor, uh, and we don't even get to see the actual transcripts. <laughs> <laughs> we only see the total GPA anyway. So it's I should, only the, yeah. I should send you an episode I did. I, I actually, you might enjoy it. I was actually in, um, when I was in high school, I was a bit obsessed with grades myself and ended up getting into Princeton, but I I was very um, driven to get good grades and a little bit, a little bit unhealthy sometimes about this. So if you had told me back then about this bias, I probably would have gone even more crazy, but, um, but it, uh, but, but I've learned a lot since then. And, and I think I have a healthier relationship to learning now, I think, but, but yeah, we, but it's interesting to think about, we did this, the, the piece was not about me. It was about, you know, it was an anecdote within this look at the history of grades and, and problems with the GPA, so I'll send you the link. Oh, yeah, but oh very interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you. So I want to go back to thinking the class. So it's you've been doing that for a couple of years, um, and it sounds like students responded. They were interested in it. What kind of reaction did you get to it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in nineteen uh, in 2019, um, I had about like 450 students, uh, which is why um, I ended up writing the book because uh, uh, it was featured in the Yale Alumni Magazine. And uh, one of the Yale alumni who's a book editor, a very famous editor at uh, Macmillan, um, he contacted me. He read the article and contacted me and, you know, would you like to write a book based on your your course, so which I did, and unfortunately, after that pandemic hit, um, and uh, I really do not like giving a Zoom lecture, so uh, uh, I did a, I turned it into a seminar again, and then after um, we were allowed to do it in person, um, I kind of cut it down to one hundred students. So I had to cut down like hundreds of students in the enrollment um, because because of that. But um, the reason why I cut it down to 100 is also because of the course evaluation. Some of the negative reviews that I got when it was a 450 students was that this course really needs some discussion sections. Because, yeah, of course, the whole course is about thinking. You have to talk about it. And uh, so I cut it down to 100 so that we can have some discussions uh, in a small groups. Yeah. <laughs> But the students, why did you hear from students like that they wanted a course like this or they were drawn to it? Yeah, because, I mean, for many of them, it's because they want to outsmart everybody in the room, right? <laughs> they want to make better decisions than others. And, you know, there are some students who told me that they got a job at, you know, high power finance uh, company because they cited some of the experiments that I covered in the course. <laughs> so 
I did actually tell students, oh, this is the experiment that got the job at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> I sometimes say that. <laughs> and that kind of wakes up some students. But that's not the point of, uh, of course, that's not the point. Uh, but it's just that people realize that there are reasons why it's better to be rational and um and also the other thing is uh, they they really like my real life examples and it's actually one of the uh it's an assignment for the final paper they now have to go out and find the real life example that matters to them and then they have to figure out how to fix it they have to propose ways to intervene on those fallacies and these are the a great experiment uh I found, you know a great um uh, tools that they can use for the, the, the rest of their lives. So uh, I, that's another reason why I use a lot of examples. People tend to remember things more in terms of the specific events, specific examples, rather than abstract theories. So, um, and uh, the students say, uh, it's still, there are still alumni who are contacting me and talking about, oh, I remember that story that you told us about blah, blah, blah. And I, I really, I think, I hope that these are the kind of uh, skills that they can uh, keep for the rest of their lives. Yeah, you got to share which is the which is the trick that gets you in that that gets you that job at Goldman Sachs. What was the what was the the experiment or learning in the class that got that kid his dream job? Okay, it's a study done by my uh, uh, friend Daniel Oppenheimer at CMU. Um, they created uh, fictitious. So there are three parts in this experiment. Um, in one exper- in the first experiment, they created fictitious names of uh, shares, stocks, and some names were pronounceable, and others were uh, very Im- impossible to pronounce. And um, uh, and they had to uh, uh, judge uh, how well um, this is uh, each stock is gonna do. And these are completely made of stocks, so there's no other information other than the names. And people judge that the pronounceable stocks will do better than the un, uh, non-pronounceable, um, disfluent stocks. So, but then, you know, there can be some possible explanations, which is that maybe pronounceable ones just sound more familiar, and the ones that are, that are hard to pronounce, maybe they're foreign stocks, or, you know, who knows. So... So they actually looked at the names of the real stocks, um, at the, you know, in the United States. And they had the subjects to determine which names are, uh, pronounceable, uh, easy to pronounce, which ones are, uh, more difficult to pronounce. And then after that, they actually looked at the actual performance of the stock market of these stocks. And the ones with the pronounceable names actually performed much better. Um, it's significantly quite a bit. And in the third experiment, which is my most favorite, they, you know, the ticker code on the stocks, it's like a three digit or four, uh, four, four letters. Yeah, yeah. And that should be totally arbitrary. That should not have any meaning. But some are pronounceable, like uh, maybe like I'm just making up T-O-K is pronounceable, but M-N-R is not pronounceable, right? And then, so they made the judgment and the pronoun, the ones with the pronounceable ones actually performed better than the other ones. It's like, this is an example of, um, 
what it, I call the fluency effect. So how fluent, uh, fluent processing can bias us one way or another. So I always think that maybe I should have changed my name uh, into something more pronounceable <laughs> early on. I didn't think about it, but somehow you're doing okay. The- you're doing okay. Um, <laughs> but I. Yeah, but a student says she got a summer internship based on this experiment. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, what are what are some of the, um, you know, what are some what what's another, you know, lesson from the book that you feel like people, more people should know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. My last chapter in the book is actually some of my most favorite, and I put it at the end because it's about the future. Think about future. And I also don't have a really specific good answer to that problem. But uh, so it kind of, you know, ended in a more open-ended manner. But it's about thinking about how much weight do we give about the future, um, future rewards and uh future pains as well. So people have a tendency to underweigh the future rewards. So $400 right now seems a lot more valuable than $430 two weeks from now, for instance. So people tend to discount the future rewards and they also discount future pains. So which is the reason why we tend to procrastinate. You know, there's, if there's a report that you have to write right now, you put it off as if it's going to be easier in the future. No, it's going to be exactly the same pain. So, um, so I talk about those kind of uh, things, but then, um, at the same time, I mean, you should not discount the future rewards too much. But at the same time, you should not overweigh the future rewards too much, and which is, is a tendency that I seem to be seeing in young people these days, especially um, in high school. So I, when I teach this, I just give them a, a one example that all Yale students can relate to right away, and and that is just think about what you were like in high school. You were thinking that if you get into Yale, your life will be all set. It's going to be like, (laughs) there will be no worries, no anxiety whatsoever. As soon as I say that, students just break down and just they laugh how, how, you know, out loud. Because it's not the case. Yes, yes, That's what they thought. Yeah, but it doesn't. Yes, exactly. And it's exactly this. And then after that, I say, you know, life is like this. For any goal that you have, it's going to be like this. No matter what goal you set out to, um, it's going to be like that. So, and then the open-ended question is then how do we balance? I mean, we can't ignore the future either, but how do we balance? Um, how do we uh, put up with, you know, how do we um, proc- how do we put up with the current you know suffering for the future rewards right so i mean my you know vague answer to it is if you don't enjoy the process right now then it's not worth pursuing cuz you're living in the moment so even if it's a pain it can be a good pain too so uh otherwise then just you know it's not worth it yeah but it's not, of course, the, the answer is not that, that simple for many people. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, this important work of teaching critical thinking, you know, uh, 
that the book talks about, it does feel like, you know, the a role of college that in general, um, but that feels like, I don't know, it feels like there's all this um, dialogue and narrative around college as getting you a job and a discussion of whether kind of liberal arts is as necessary or whether college, you know, whether isn't it with college costs being so high, isn't there some way to shortcut this? But, um, you know, is this something you feel like colleges are, are maybe not doing as well lately or that we're losing the desire as a culture to like, um, teach these skills to every student in every college? Yeah, I personally, I think this should be a required course for every college, of course, because it would be learning, um, critical learning skills. It's not learning about like specific experiments or specific theories of, in psychology, which can change in the future. You know, science always change, uh, theories change, but it's more about learning how to think, which can be generalizable in many ways. And also, it's not just about learning how stupid people are, how many errors we can make in our thinking. It's more about why we make those errors, why we have evolved to think that way. And as a result, we can also think about what we can do to prevent prevent this. So, for example, sometimes... Um, when you are talking with someone who has a totally opposite views about climate change or politics or whatever, um, my take on that is do not think that you can change that person's views because that's going to be nearly impossible. We, you know, that we can't really change the, everything that that person experienced or learned in the lifetime. There's no way. So maybe more practical guideline in that case is to give up uh, on changing the views and rather than trying to change the view, just focus on solving the specific problems at hand. And also by doing that, you can kind of respect or you can at least pretend that you're respecting the other person's views, um, which actually opens up, you know, the conversation, uh, more easily. So I, it, so this is just one example of why it's important to understand why we make these errors, why we make these biased interpretations. And that way we can come up with more practical solutions, uh, moving on. Yeah. In other words, that person's not a lost cause if they have views you don't agree with or even broadly, because yeah. if you rationally convince them, you you might still convince them on a given issue. If you work on that issue and try to present it in a way that um, can break through. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yep. It, it does feel daunting and people, there is so much polarization these days that it does feel like there's this sense of frustration with each other as we as we disagree sometimes yeah 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 um i have a family member immediate family member who have totally different views also myself so <laughs> we just talk about dogs and weather <laughs> yeah and these I, I do worry a little bit sometimes about you know okay every college student should take this class but it's also almost like where or maybe it should be you know even in before that in school so that every more people get it. Um, so I guess the trick is there is this sense of like, 
um, that Yale student, the idea that a Yale student wanted to take this class so they could outsmart, you know, their, their future, <laughs> you know, job competitors um, is interesting. And I think it does go to this like um, overall sense of what knowledge can be used as almost like a weapon. Whereas, you know, these kind of skills seem more fundamental than it shouldn't just be reserved for some, the ones you can get into. Yet. No, no. Uh, that's what some students might think uh, that, you know, that they will get out of this course, but it's not that I am not teaching that at all. So <laughs> if they, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, uh, it's more that um, if you make rational choices, then you actually end up helping other people. So let's go back to the confirmation bias one more time. So uh, let's say there is a CEO, and let's say this is a completely fictional society, uh, and there are two kinds of um, uh, skin, uh, purple skin and green skin. And um, the, there's a CEO who is a purple skinned, and um, he hired 100 people with purple skin. And they went through all the interviews and they were hired because they are qualified. So, of course, most of them did a great job. So once you observe that, then the CEO will conclude that, oh, purple skin people do a great job, right? Obviously, you know, 99% of them did a great job. So, of course, purple skin people do a great job. So the CEO will continue hiring people those with the purple skin because, and that is exactly the confirmation bias based on just the evidence that seems to confirm your hypothesis. You just continue um, trying to confirm your hypothesis. Uh, so, but then the, you need to uh, try to disconfirm your hypothesis, but, oh, maybe there's nothing special about purple skin. So it's possible that if you had hired 100 people with a green skin, 99% of them could have done a great job. And if you have that information, then you know that skin color really does not matter. But the reason why the CEO commits a confirmation bias in this case is that it feels so risky. You know that purple skin people work, so why would you take a risk of hiring people with a green skin? And that's how the racism goes on and the sexism as well. You know, male scientists have been doing a great job in the field. So why do you risk with a female scientists, right? Uh, so that's how the confirmation bias goes in the society. So once you learn that how irrational it is and how it hurts the society. So going back to the scientists, you know, COVID vaccines were invented, discovered by female scientists, mostly female scientists. And, and that's a, like a blatant examples. Yeah. So once you learn how confirmation bias can hurt the society as well, then being rational, which is avoiding the confirmation bias is a great thing for the, for everybody. It's not outsmarting other people, making the right rational choice. It's not about uh, outsmarting other people at all. Yeah. Are we having more breakthroughs in behavioral science and in our understanding of how to think better? Yes, definitely. Um, so m some of the intervention methods that I presented were, um, were, uh, uh, 
they were verified through experiments. They're scientifically verified, but some methods are something that I just, you know, propose personally based on my own opinion. They're not really scientific ver- verified. And, but, you know, the, the, now the progress is, it's not just showing that we, uh, we make all these thinking errors, but more on how can we now intervene on these errors. So that's kind of the new trend coming up. So, uh, I hope we're going to see more of those. And, uh, yeah. And also there are many other, actually, the other thing is the book covers only about like a third or quarter of the, what I cover in the course. And <laughs> throughout the course, I cover about 100 experiments. Um, and uh, there are many other topics like moral reasoning, creativity, you know, uh, fake news, uh, as I mentioned. Um, and I don't know whether I'll have a chance to share those too. But uh, the, yeah, the other thing is that the book is not the complete selection of what's going on in the cognitive science either. <laughs> if, you, if you have a minute, what is the... What is the quick nutshell on on your you know um, fake news misinformation? Uh, yeah, the fake news. Um, so there are many reasons why fake news happens. Our brain is limited. We have a limited capacity, so we need to store only the most important information. And uh, so you know, George Washington was the first state, uh, first president of the United States, right? Yeah. And do you remember where you learned that or who taught you that? Not exactly. No. So we have a tendency to store the content of the information, the fact that George Washington was the, the first president, but not the source of the information, where or when or who taught you that. Because that kind of information is not as important as the content in many cases. Uh, so, so that's actually a very adaptive system because you are storing more important information and just forgetting the less relevant information. And that can be the problem for the fake news. So even if you read some uh, news uh, article through the onions, even though you knew that it was a fake news, right? After a while, you may forget the source and you may misremember as a true news. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the reasons why the fake news can happen. So you may kind of... Uh, uh, you may have saw it in the Facebook posting and you thought, oh, that's just a BS. You know, this cannot be true. But then after a while, you forget the source of it and you might think, oh, that sounds familiar. And when you see it again, you might think that, oh, that sounds familiar. It might have been the true news or something. And that had been actually experimentally demonstrated that, yeah, just because you forget the source of it. And the other thing is, but I'm just. I have when, to say, with yeah, with sorry, yeah. with April Fools coming up, this is the dangerous moment. Like we were debating the other day, it's like, do we put out joke spoof article blurbs or articles, or is that too is it too dangerous in this in this environment? Yeah, it could be. And the other thing is, um, even if you knew it was a fake news, if it's repeated multiple times it now starts sounding like a true news. Yeah. And that had been, had been also experimentally demonstrated too. So 
uh, and the 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 fake news tends to be circulated more because probably some people think it was just funny, right? It's just ridiculous. It's outrageous. Who would believe that? And they just share with their friends, thinking that oh, is this funny? But then that could be the reason why we now start believing it as being true news. So those are multiple reasons. There are many reasons like this, and also we tend to be. There are two kind of、uh, systems in general. One is we make the first system is like we make a quick、um, intu-、uh, intuitive judgments,、uh, or and the second system is that we make more deliberate effort taking、uh, judgments. And when you are reading Facebook or Twitter and so on, you don't really engage in system two. You use system one. You just scroll down and quickly, quickly. And when you do that, you you are less likely to engage in critical thinking, and you just say, "Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, it sounds plausible. It sounds familiar. I've heard that before." And that's、uh, that's one of the reasons、uh, that news also spreads. So the problem is we don't know what to do. <laughs> Yeah, so this the is the future is the、field. problem. Exactly.、Uh, so there are now many, many studies now popping up、uh, in the field, trying to、um, fix this issue, and、um, so that's why I didn't make it to the book yet because it's still an ongoing process right now. And hopefully, within a、uh, couple of years, we will have a more synthesized theories or. More systematic recommendations about what to do with this.、Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for. We'll have to. We'll have to stay tuned for the sequel of your book. Thank you、yeah. so much for sharing this with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> this has been the Ed Surge podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations we hope will ignite your curiosity about learning. This is part of a theme that we're following about what new research tells us about the learning process, and I'm excited to say that we will be doing a live podcast as a session of the South by Southwest EDU conference in Austin in just a couple weeks. If you are going to be at that event, I hope you'll join us. I'd love to meet some listeners in person. I'll definitely stick around after the session, so come introduce yourself if you're there. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung. Music this episode by Rowan Jane, and script editing by Rebecca Koenig. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. <laughs>